We apologise to the listener of this tape. There is a hum in the background. This is on the master recording. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew and the 13th chapter. The 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to read part of this from verse 1. On that day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and there were gathered unto him great multitudes, so that he entered into a boat and sat, and all the multitudes stood on the beach. And he spake to them many things in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went forth to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. And others fell upon the rocky places where there had not much earth, and straightway they sprang up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell upon the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them, and others fell upon the good ground and yielded fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He that hath ears, let him hear. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that which he hath. Therefore speak I to, the, to them in parables, because seeing they see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And unto them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall in no wise understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall in no wise perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest happy they should perceive with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should turn again, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men desire to see the things which ye see and saw them not, and to hear the things which ye hear and heard them not. Hear then ye the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, and understandeth it not, then cometh the evil one and snatcheth away that which hath been sown in his heart. This is he that was sown. By the wayside. And he that was sown upon the rocky places, this is he that heareth the word, and straightway with joy receiveth it, yet hath he not root in himself. But endureth for a while, when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, straightway he stumbleth. And he that was sown among the thorns, this is he that heareth the word and the care of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful.
And he that was sown upon the good ground, this is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, who verily beareth fruit and bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Shall we bow together in a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you as we come to your word that uh, you have not left us to our own gifts or ta talents or energies, to our own understanding, but, Lord, you have provided for us that precious, powerful anointing through the finished work of our Lord Jesus. And you have made it available to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, dear Lord, we want to avail ourselves, I for speaking and all of us for our hearing, that this time may not in any way be futile. It may be redeemed time in every part. O oh Lord, we commit ourselves to you that you will give us that kind of light that we may truly, Lord, hear with understanding. O oh Lord, work in all our hearts in this way. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus, and to him we shall give all the glory and praise. Amen. As you know, the theme of this conference is the King is Coming, and I have been uh, given the portion in Matthew, in this 13th chapter of Matthew, to do with the parables of the kingdom. Now, I don't know what our brothers have done to me, but they have given me a very controversial part of the word upon which there are a whole number of different and diametrically opposed interpretations. <laughs> of course, Brother Stephen will have even bigger problem when he comes to chapter 24 and 25, and I have therefore derived great comfort from that. <laughs> I uh, want to uh, take four phrases and spend each one of the times given to me on one of those phrases that comes from this chapter 13. I want to speak this morning on the word of the kingdom. And then I want to speak tomorrow evening on the mysteries of the kingdom. And then I want to speak my next time that it is my turn on uh, the sons of the kingdom. And lastly, I want to speak on being made disciples to the kingdom. These are four phrases you will find within this chapter. And I believe perhaps they bring us more to the heart of the matter and to our need to be prepared in the light of the Lord's coming than anything else. So without any further ado, I'd just like technically to point out one thing about these parables. We have seven parables here in these 53 verses. Seven parables. Some people say eight parables because they add the little one about the uh, steward, the faithful householder who has been made a disciple to the kingdom of heaven, who brings treasures both out of his treasures, things both old and new. 
They say this is a parable. I think there are actually seven, not eight, myself. Then we find that these seven parables are divided quite interestingly. There is a first introductory and foundational parable. Then we have three, and then we have another three. So we have one and a trio and another trio. Then we notice a very interesting thing. Of course, Matthew is the most Jewish of all the Gospels, and therefore we have a kind of... Um, uh, framework that is uh, almost rabbinic. We have, for instance, in the trio, first one parable and then two that have some kind of similarity. And the Lord interprets the first of those trio after he's given the three of them. Then we have another trio, and the first two of that trio have something in common. And then we have a last one, and the Lord interprets the last one, as if the Lord is giving us some key to our understanding of these two trios. Now, I hope that hasn't befuddled you. Uh, but um, that uh, at least gives you the kind of framework of these seven remarkable uh, parables. Now, I want to, this morning, talk about the word of the kingdom. Is the word of the kingdom, you will find this phrase uh, here in um, uh, chapter 13 and uh, verse 19, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the evil one. The word of the kingdom. Is the word of the kingdom the same as the word of God? There are some uh, expositors of God's word who tell us that the word of the kingdom is not the word of God. The word of the kingdom, they say, is something to do with the... Uh, only specifically to do with the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus. But I think that if we look very carefully we shall find that the Lord Jesus himself interprets the word of the kingdom in terms of the word in general. The word of the kingdom must have a special emphasis, but it is the word of God emphasizing a, a certain theme that runs through it from the book of Genesis right through to the book of Revelation. For instance, if you look here at this 13th chapter, we read in verse 20, Jesus, he that was sown upon the rocky places, this is he that heareth the word, and straightway with joy receiveth it. There, verse 21, um, because of the word. Verse 22, he that was sown among the thorns, this is he that heareth the word. Verse 23, he that was sown upon the good ground, this is he that heareth the word and understandeth it. Um, it seems almost as if he is uh, uh, explaining this, that it is not a particular or specific word, but something to do with the whole word of God. Now, if we turn to Luke and chapter 8, we have Luke's record of this same um, parable. And he, he, trans, he in, records it, like this, in Luke chapter 8 and verse 11. Now the parable is this, the seed 
is the word of God. This is exactly the same parable. The seed is the word of God. Now turn back to Mark chapter 4 and verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. The sower soweth the word. The sower soweth the word. Now, of course, the whole of Matthew is to do with the kingdom of heaven. That is his favorite phrase. It is all to do with the king and all to do with the kingdom. And therefore it is interesting that the way he records it is instead of just speaking of the word of God, he speaks of the word of the kingdom. He speaks of sons of the kingdom. He speaks of the mistress of the kingdom. He speaks of uh, being made a disciple to the kingdom. This is his contribution to us. This is the truth that God has laid on his heart in a specific way to be communicated uh, to us. Now, actually, the word of the kingdom is the summing up of the whole word of God. When Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom, he went to the very heart of the whole Bible, of the revelation that we have in these 66 books, and said it is all to do with God's king and all to do with God's kingdom. That's why there is a universe. That's why God created Adam and Eve. That's why he created a human race. That's why the serpent, Satan, came in to rob God of that kingdom and to take it over. That's why man fell. That's why another authority came into the earth. The power the um, uh, powers of darkness, the authority of darkness came into uh, the world to contradict, to contest God's purpose concerning his son. That's why Jesus was born, the long-promised Messiah, the messianic king of the seed of David. That's why he was born in the Jewish royal city of Bethlehem. That's why he was born of the tribe of Judah. Because he was the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. This king came to uh, into this world to take back the usurped authority back to God. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? And so here when we come to Matthew's gospel, we have the Lord Jesus proclaiming the kingdom and therefore the king. He is, as it were, telling them the kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom of God is here. What did he mean? He meant that in him, as the king, the kingdom of God had come. And then the rest of the New Testament is the explanation of this kingdom. We are told how we are born into the kingdom. Verily, verily, I say unto you, John's records, 
Except a man be born anew or born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. And all the way through the rest of the letters of Paul and of Peter and of James and of John, the Hebrew letter, wherever we turn, it is the interpretation, the explanation of this kingdom of God that has come in the person of the Lord Jesus and through whose work you and I as sinners have been delivered from the power of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son. We are told that one day that kingdom is going to come when the king finally returns. And with him there was going to be a public manifestation of the glory of God. A public manifestation of God's righteousness. There's going to be a public manifestation of God's kingdom throughout the whole of this universe. Well, we thank God for that. Now, that encompasses the whole 66 books of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. It is all to do with this. So when the Lord Jesus began to give these parables of the kingdom, he was going to the heart of something. It wasn't something new. It wasn't something novel. It wasn't something that uh, you never find anywhere else. It goes right the way back to before the foundation of the world, into the very heart of God, the thought of God for humanity, the thought of God in creating us. And he goes right the way on to the ages of the ages. The ages to come. This is the word of God. Now if you turn to uh, certain other scriptures. Um, we begin to uh, perhaps understand this even more clearly. For instance take the second letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And chapter 3. To Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Now listen very carefully to this. All scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction which is in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, furnished completely unto every good work. Did you hear that? All scripture or every scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction which is in righteousness. For what reason? That the man of God may be complete, furnished completely. Unto every good work. The word of God. The authority of the word of God. The inspiration of the word of God. The accuracy of the word of God. The relevance in every part of the word of God. Oh, 
Oh, time we're through this hour, I hope we'll have at least seen something about the Word of God. There is an enormous onslaught on the Word of God. Not least in evangelical and charismatic circles. It is being shelved. It is being put on one side. It is being devalued. It is not being given the place God has given to the Word of God. It's 66 books in every single part. And because of that, there will come a great falling away amongst the people of God. Because they have exchanged the foundation of God's word for their own experiences and their own concepts. I, for one, am all for experience. The more experience you have of the Lord, the better. And I don't mind even if you have ecstasies. Why not? In this terrible world, with all its affliction, all its problem, thank God for every single being caught up to a third heaven, every single meeting with the Lord that means that you walk on air for at least a few days. <laughs> I'm not against it. But to exchange the basis, the solid, objective, defined basis of God's word for shaky experiences, for something which can be emotional, for something which could be counterfeit, for something which has no definition, which is so entirely subjective, is entirely dangerous, and must bring us to the place where a great apostasy will come amongst the people of God, a great falling away, when they will heap to themselves, teachers having itching ears. They've got ears that only want to hear certain themes and certain subjects. They will do away with certain books or certain parts of books and only dwell on certain areas. They only want to hear what they want to hear and what falls in line with their own pleasure and their own interest and their own fulfillment. Some idea, friend? I believe that this matter is of tremendous importance in the light of the coming king. The Lord Jesus said something which is so simple and yet so profound in his great high priestly prayer recorded in John 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. In other words, sanctification may be an experience. It may at times have tremendous emotion in it. It could blow your mind when God meets you and for the first time you understand that the Holy Spirit has been given to you. That he not only indwells you, but he empowers you. It can blow your mind when for the first time you understand that you were crucified with Christ. That when Christ died, you died. And that now you can live in newness, walk in newness of life. It can blow your mind. But my dear friends, you are not sanctified by experience. You're not sanctified by your own indefinable experience, which may differ from one person to another. It is through the Word of God 
that you are sanctified. When God makes his word a living reality in our hearts, when we hear the word with understanding and it goes into our heart and takes root and germinates and grows and bears fruit, then we are sanctified. Then we are joined to the Lord. Then we discover the Lord. Then we are safe from following our own experiences ring through no. This is the word of God. Jesus said, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Not their experience is truth. Their understanding is truth. Thy word is truth. I think of Psalm 119, that longest of all the Psalms. Psalm 119 and verse 160. And this is what the psalmist said by inspiration of the Spirit of God. The sum of thy word is truth. And every one of thy righteous ordinances endureth forever. The sum of thy word is true. My dear brothers and sisters, what a necessity it is for us in the time that is left to us. We don't know how long we have. I, I personally am not sure. Brother Stephen may have more light on this than I. I don't know whether the Lord's coming tomorrow or in ten years or whether we have another century to go. But the fact of the matter is this. There is a necessity in the time that is given to us to get to know God's Word. Not to ignore it. Not to despise it. But to study the Word of God. To meditate in the Word of God. To allow the Spirit of God to do His work through the Word of God in our lives. And supposing the Lord's coming is delayed for a hundred years, will you be sad that you spent time studying the Word of God? That you learned the Word of God? That you allowed the, Lord, the Word of God to do something in your life? Who of us knows whether we shall be here on this earth in one year's time? None of us know. Only God knows the span of a man or a woman's life. You may have much shorter than you realize, but in that little brief time that's given to you, God can enable you to get to know the Word of God and the Spirit of the Lord to do His work through the Word in your life, preparing you for the coming King. Don't think for a single moment that because you might die, that means you won't be there at the coming of the Lord. The dead in Christ shall rise first. I've often wondered which would be the most remarkable experience. Is it more remarkable to be alive? Some people are so selfish, they think, oh yes, I don't want to die. 
I don't want to be put into the earth or whatever else they do in these parts. I mean, um, I, don't want, I don't want any of that experience. I want to be alive at the coming of the Lord. Well, 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 I'm not sure. I'm not sure that the Apostle Paul won't have a better experience when he finds that his body is reproduced from the atoms that have somehow gone back into the earth. Dust to dust and ashes to ashes after 2,000 years. His body is recreated and he's not in one whit behind you and me who might be alive at the coming of the Lord but, but the dead in Christ shall rise first and Paul will say I got there before you <laughs> 2,000 years but I got there before you I don't know which is the most wonderful experience, but I mustn't digress. We must come back to this matter. The fact of the matter is, whether you have only a few years left to you, or whether you have a whole lifetime, whether the Lord comes within a few years, or whether the Lord comes in another century, the fact of the matter is, we need to get to know the Word of God. It is not a luxury. It is not something that is some kind of, um, uh, well, when I have time, I'm going to study the Word of God. It is a fundamental necessity. Some people's attitude is, well, when I retire, I'll have plenty of time. But my dear friends, I'm not yet retired, but... I often think when people retire, their minds are not the same. <laughs> I don't want to be rude to those of you who are retiring, but what I'm saying is, oh, what a stupid device that we have. What a stupidity that we could be taken in by a device of the enemy telling us one day when you retire, you can study the word. Why, my dear friends, we may not have the same keenness. We may not have the same alertness. We may not have the same ability to study them. So we put it off and we put it off and put it off until in the end, half blind and nearly deaf, we have time to do it. <laughs> it is so stupid. It is a necessity to study the word of God. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By hiding God's heart a uh, word, hiding God's word in his heart. A young man. We need to read the word of God. Read it. Some people's idea is that somehow magically they're going to get to know the word of God. They come to a conference like this and they sit and listen to people like me. And they think, it's magic. It's going to work. I'm going to listen to the word of God now, day after day, hour after hour. But my dear friend, that's not the way for the word of God to enter your life and uh, fall into good ground and take root and grow and bear fruit. Of course it's good to come at a time like this. We get light in these times. We get understanding. Sometimes some of us who've been lazy and careless are suddenly challenged and a whole course of our life is redirected as a result of such a conference as this. I'm not despising coming together in this way. Not at all. Not for a moment. But my dear friend, 
You have got to read the word of God for yourself. In these days when everybody, especially here in North America, are eyes square like televisions. They watch. That's all they ever do. Watch. Watch. <laughs> People don't read books anymore. It is unbelievable. We have a whole generation of watchers. Television watchers. My dear friends, you're not going to get to know the Word of God that way. You are going to have to make time to take this book and read it. So someone says, well, I find it very difficult in the old King James Version. Well, that's okay. There are lots of new versions. Why don't you get a new version? Why don't you get sometimes a very modern version? They're not always so accurate, but at least you can read. You can read a whole book in one sitting. You can say, instead of reading that cheap novel, that thrills you for a moment and does nothing in your life. You could read the whole book of Ruth in less than 20 minutes. Now, maybe some of you who are not used to reading, maybe it takes you 45 minutes. But I mean, never mind. <laughs> Whether it's 20 minutes or 45 minutes, you get to know the Word of God. You're reading the Word of God. We have to read. That's the only way we can. I thank God that when I first came to the Lord, if you forgive a personal thing, when I first came to I had no Bible. And nobody thought at that time that nobody in Britain didn't. Everybody had a Bible. I mean, everybody who was anything had a Bible. So nobody ever thought to give me or my sister a Bible. We only had a little tiny gospel of John. That was the only thing they ever gave to us on the day that we made you know, that decision that they talk about, and, um, and I, they gave me uh, this little gospel of John, and I read it, and 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 read it, until it fell to pieces, and to this day, I know anywhere where the gospel of John, I know all the different things in the gospel of John, because it burns, and I had nothing else, that was the word of God for me, I had nothing else. Um, the end of that, when it fell to pieces, I managed finally to get a Bible. And then I found it the most exciting thing in the world. There were all these Christians in that church, so blasé. They only listened to sermons. And uh, if you said to them about something in Genesis chapter 24, they would look at you as a... <laughs> Genesis 24... <laughs> Genesis 24. <laughs> I mean, for me, it was the most exciting thing in the world to read the Bible, to discover something I'd never read, never been taught, never been to any instruction, in, excused all religious instruction at school. It was so exciting. And I had to thank God for the people who taught me first one of the Word of God. There was one old Swedish lady, we, I called her an aunt, I knew her as an aunt. She adopted myself and my sister when we were both saved. And uh, because she was very wealthy and she lived in a great mansion around uh, the corner, uh, my family didn't think it was too bad for us to have something to do with her. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, she was very clever. She, she used to say, I will give you so many shillings if you learn 
off by heart Psalm so-and-so. I remember Psalm 37. That was one of them. Well, the Psalms too, and passages from Isaiah. I remember it very well. I used to go on Saturday morning to her home, and then I think we had a cup of tea, and then I would stand, and in front of her and the servants, she brought them all in. I had to recite my passage, and if it was correct, I got the money. <laughs> now, maybe it was Jewish blood that made me a sort of <laughs> even more interested in studying the Word of God, but it did something for me I shall never forget. She used to say to me, store the Word in your heart. There will come a day when you won't have that word. Store it in your heart. And I used to find that so exciting. I remember the first time in Egypt when I was sent to these two old retired missionaries in Portside. I've never forgotten them. They were walking Bibles. Miss Liblick, Alexander Liblick, an Estonian, and Kathleen Smith, an Irish woman. They were the most remarkable people I had up to that time ever met. To me, they were amazing. In ordinary conversation, suddenly one would say, doesn't Nahum say something about that? And I would say, Nahum? <laughs> Nahum says something? Yeah, and then the And in prayer, I shall never forget when in prayer, one of them would say, Lord, in Obadiah, you verse someone so you've said this. And I thought, Obadiah, where's Obadiah? <laughs> They were walking Bibles. And they weren't pious and heavy. They were able to laugh. They were normal human beings, flesh and blood. But the word of God was in them. They were those into whose lives the word of God had come into good soil. And they were bearing fruit a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. I thank God for these people that had such an influence on me when I was young in the Lord. And I understood this book is... A, Auntie Dagmar used to say to me every time she saw, if I put anything on that Bible, anything. I mean, she wasn't Jewish, but I mean, it was unbelievable. If I put anything on there, she would come and say, no. <laughs> this is the word of God, she would say. It did something to me. Maybe you think it's superstition, but it did something to me. Maybe something I don't know in one's genetic history. But I, I began to understand this book is not any ordinary book. This book is not just to be put on a shelf as holy scripture and revered, almost worshipped, and never read. But it is the word of God. And through this book, God can do something in me. Always through this book. Never apart from this book. He takes this word and he gets into my life and he does something in me. My dear friends, the king is coming. If God has not done that kind of work in your life and my life, what are we going to do when the king comes? Oh, what a battle there's been over this word of God. What conflict. One of the things that most was most precious to me when I was young in the Lord was to understand how people had died, burnt at the stake, strangled. Some of them buried in dungeons and eaten alive by rats to give us this book in our own mother tongue. 
Nowadays, there's a kind of devaluation of it. A kind of, what is it? We take what we want and we leave what we don't want. We have no idea what it's cost people to give us this book. In the Reformation, whatever thoughts the Reformation may have had, the one thing that was recovered in that great work of the Spirit was the unique and absolute authority of God's Word in all matters to do with life and conduct. My dear friend, how Satan has hated this book. This battle has been continuous and ferocious, gigantic in its dimensions. It has never ceased. Think of the revelation. And whatever interpretation of the book of Revelation we might have, one thing is certain. We have there an enormous conflict between God and Satan, between Christ and the Antichrist, between Babylon and Jerusalem. It's all there. And this is how it is introduced. John, a servant of God, who was a witness of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And then he explains something more. I, John, was in Patmos. For what? For the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And then all the way through this book, with its summing up of the last issues of world history, we have the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus. As if that is the heart of the whole conflict. As if that lies... Now, my dear friends, we might say, let's dwell on the testimony of Jesus as if it is the experience. As if, as if it is only to do with discovering him. But, my dear friends, we must have the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Or we can go off the rails thinking we're holding the testimony of Jesus and some have. They have got into weird doctrines and novel interpretations of scripture uh, in my estimation according to their own empire building instincts. Because they have not understood that the word of God and the testimony of Jesus have to go together. Satan is the father of lies. He is a liar from the beginning. And this book is truth. And that's why Satan knows that he must spend an inordinate amount of his time belittling this book, devaluing it deriding it, 
dismembering it, undermining it in the minds of those who know the Lord. His objective is to sow doubt, to sow disbelief, to make God's word appear irrelevant, to make God's word appear impractical in the 20th century. To make God's word appear to be inaccurate and therefore untrustworthy. To make God's words appear to be impossible to obey. He wants us to relegate these 66 books to a, an honored place in our library where it will remain. Honored, unread for the most part, unless we go to fellowship, where we take it down. And we will open it up wherever someone is speaking. He wants this book to be theology. That's all. Now, is it not amazing, and I must watch the time, but is, the, is it not amazing to hear the Lord Jesus telling the most simple story? These stories are all taken from the local life, the, the very ordinary local life of the people. And he says, a sower, everybody understood that. <laughs> There's not a single soul that listened to him, hadn't seen a sower going out sowing. It was all the more dramatic in our part of the world where things lie like desert for quite a part of the year until the rains come. And then suddenly everything becomes different. And people go out plowing and uh, uh, sowing. And before long, you see a harvest. He takes a story, a very ordinary story, one known to everybody and says, the sower went forth to sow. And as he scattered the seed, some fell on hard ground. And the birds came and gobbled it up. Well, we've all seen that as well. Another seed fell into the ground, but it was rock just underneath. Very little soil. It began to grow quickly. And then suddenly the sun came up in all its power as it only can in our part of the world. And it died. And other seed fell on the wayside where there are all the thorns. Now we have almost 60 different forms of thorns. And when he was sowing it, you couldn't see the thorns. That's the interesting thing. It's not as if a stupid sower was going out there into the... No, no, no. It wasn't there. Because the thorns are the last things to come up. Now, we have all the beautiful things to begin with. The cyclamen and the anemones and the ranunculus and all the other beautiful little flowers. The flowers of the field. The lilies of the field that Jesus spoke about. But when they're over and, 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 and the wheat begins to grow and it grows and grows. Then the thorns come up. And they grow very fast. And quickly overtake the wheat before it's got a chance and choke it. Gone, he said. 
and other fell into good ground. Yielded a hundredfold, sixtyfold, and thirtyfold. Now listen, this is incredible. If there had only been all those theologians around them, they would have died of horror. What is this man talking about? Is he speaking about the word of God as seed falling into the ground? The word of God is something that is full of philosophy, full of ideal, it's theology. It's, it's something to entertain our minds, to fascinate us, to give us concepts for the future. It's not something that falls into the ground and takes root and grows up and bears fruit. What a ridiculous thing. But Jesus spoke of the word of the kingdom as having no meaning unless it falls into a life and takes root and grows up and bears fruit. Now, my dear friends, I know many people who are fascinated with the Bible. They've got all their different schemes for the Bible and their systems of interpretation and schools of prophecy and I don't know what else. But when you look at their lives, there's nothing. Jesus spoke of this word of the kingdom as being a living thing. Something that falls into the good soil of our lives and takes root and grows up. Oh, I want to just say something about the power of God's word. I, I grew up understanding that the Bible was a kind of book of myths and legends, that it was a kind of fairy tales, basically, that uh, it had no relevance whatsoever to modern life. It had nothing to say whatsoever. It was an antique that uh, was very, very antique. <clears throat> but oh, I... When I first found the power of God's word, it just knocked me out. God's word is alive. Shakespeare isn't. Shakespeare's genius. But it's not alive. It doesn't come out of the printed page and into your life and change the whole course of your life. A word from Shakespeare can't bring you into an experience of God so that for the first time you're one with God, you have a union with God in Christ. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? The power of this, of this word of God. Consider these parables, the sower. Con consider even the parable of the tares and the wheat. The whole idea is growing, growing, growing. What shall we do? Shall we tear out the evil and leave the good? No, the Lord says, let the two grow together until the harvest. It's growth, alive. Something's alive in this thing. Uh, take the mustard tree. I shall talk about this later. This is one of our problems. The mustard tree, but... For now, all I can say is, here is a seed so small you cannot see it, and it falls into the ground and grows. 
That's all I want to put over to you at this moment. It's all there, isn't it? Something happening. Take this, this finding of a treasure in the field. It's action. Take this discovery of the pearl of great price. Action. He sells everything he has to buy the field. He sells all he has to buy the pearl. It's all action. Not just static theory, not just dead doctrine, not even merely the definition of truth. It's a, it is truth, it is defined, but it does something in us. Now begin to understand what this book says. It tells us that this whole universe stands by the word of God. Created by the word of God. That he by his word brought into being what did not exist. By his word it says. He, that's Hebrews 11. Hebrews 1 says, everything is upheld by the word of his power. Peter says, you see that this whole world is held at present by the word of God, waiting for that fire that will consume it all. The word of God. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And God who said, let there be light, has shone into our hearts to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying this, the same God who spoke a word, let there be light, and immediately there was light. This same God has spoken a word into your heart and said, let there be light, and in that moment, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shone into your heart and you were a different person. You may have been brought up in a Sunday school. You may have been brought up in a pastor's home. You may know the scriptures that they come out of your ears. But until that moment when God's light shone into your heart, it was never yours. It was all second hand. It was all just up here. But the moment that light shone into your heart, it became yours. I think of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. I'm sure you all know that well enough. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit. Listen to this word of God. This isn't just philosophy. This isn't just doctrine. This word of God is living and creative. It, 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 it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides between soul and spirit within the person. I think of the words of the angel for no word of God is devoid of power. He said that, you remember, to Mary. In Luke chapter 1 verse 37, no word of God is devoid of power. I think of the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Colossae and saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word that's here in the book come out of the book and get into you and live in you. 
Or I think of James saying, receiving the implanted word which is able to save your soul. The implanted word. So all these things, I wish we could go on and on, but we must uh, bring this to a close. What is the key to knowing the power of God's word. Why is it that some people read the book and it's dead and other people it is the power of God? Why is it that for some people the word of God is alive and others it doesn't seem to be alive? It seems to be just something like a collection of doctrines. It has to be what Jesus said, hearing and understanding. He says the person who hears and doesn't understand is gobbled up by the birds of the air. Gone. Others it's choked by thorns, tears of this world, deceitfulness of riches, and so on. But he says, the one that's sown in good soil is he that hears the word and understands it. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't it take you back to the words of the psalmist again in Psalm 119 and verse 105 when he says this, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And then he says in verse 18, Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. It seems to me that what Ernie spoke about last night, blessed are the meek, blessed are the gentle, blessed are the teachable. Here is an attitude to God's word. Open thou mine eyes. Open. I remember very well those two old missionaries that were walking Bibles when once I had such uh, cause, such a trouble with them. There was a particular matter I couldn't understand and I went at it like a, a terrier with a bone. I wouldn't let it go. I went on and on and on and on and, and ruined their whole time of devotion. Coming back to it again, but it must mean this or explain this to me. Or they, and finally, Alexandra Liblick looked at me rather severely and said, now listen, if you're going to be arrogant with the word of God, you will learn nothing. If God doesn't want to show you something, he won't show you. And it doesn't matter if you scream and shout and get into hysteria or whatever else, and if you spend up all night and wait all day and fast and do a thousand other things, if he won't show you, he won't show you. So why don't you just be quiet? <laughs> and then she said, Ask the Lord. You know, it taught me one of the biggest lessons of my life. To ask the Lord. So the things I don't understand, I say, Lord, are you going to show it to me? If he says, no answer, I know what he's saying is, wait. Sometimes I hear, sometimes I don't hear <clears throat> from him. But I have learned so much from simply understanding. Open thou thy word and let me open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law well <coughs> we must finish
one short life in which everything must be done by God. And he does all that he has to do through his word. It doesn't mean that you always understand the word, but when he does something, it is always according to his word. And later you come to understand it in the light of his word. We have a tremendous danger in manipulating the word of God, many of us. We, we sort of, um, we want it to say what we want it to say and allow us to do what we want it to allow us to do. And so many kinds of things we have. We have problems with the word of God. We say this is cultural. That belongs to the first century. That's something that's just Jewish. I mean, uh, and then in so doing, we're able to disregard vital principle. God's word is not to be played with. God will never show you anything if you want to control his word. Mold it to your own concepts. Manipulate. You won't have any light. Only <clears throat> if you are prepared to obey what he reveals to you will he give you light. And that reminds me finally of what the psalmist says. In thy light we shall see light. What an extraordinary thing to say. In thy light we shall see light. What did he mean? In the light of this book we shall get further light. On our way, on our life, on God's heart on God's purpose. So my dear children of God, don't despise the word of God. Don't devalue it. Don't ignore it. And don't contradict and gainsay it. Allow God to take this word and make it real in your life. Shall we pray? <clears throat> Lord, we know that you're coming back. But we need this word of yours to get into us and to do its work in us, Lord. Those of us who've had some experience of your word separating us unto yourself, Lord. We want more. And those of us who've never had any real experience in that way, Lord, we want to really know your word, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, help us. Give us the right attitude to this word of your. Take your word, Lord, and Bring within our hearts a new reverence for it, a new respect for it. But more than that, a new hunger and thirst to know you through your word. Lord, hear us, for we know the spirit of truth himself will take this book that he has given to us and he will apply it to us. 
He will work in us all those marvelous things that we read about in this book. Oh Lord, do this thing we pray, for we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.